Good morning, Bodhisattvas. Good morning, my friends. Um, hello, people on Zoom. And I'm understanding that this talk is going to be on YouTube. So I kind of feel like I finally made it. I'm going to be Subscribe to our channel. <laughs> So, um, I want to thank you all for being here, and I'm giving a shout out to Galen Roshi, who I believe is at Great Val in Oregon, doing great work. So today, I want to tell you the story of the Buddha, and in particular, the story of his enlightenment. Now, I know that it's a story that many of us know and know well, and um so I invite you to listen again, because I like hearing great stories again and again. Um, I think that I enjoy just the story, and I enjoy the feelings that I'm looking forward to having around different parts of the story. And like a lot of Buddhist teachings, when we hear stories that we know, and we're going to hear a lot of them over and over, there are often nuances that we hadn't picked up before. And I invite you to open yourself to those as well. Um, and if the mystical stuff bothers you at all, like it's so unbelievable, just remember it's all a bunch of metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I want to start out by saying that some biographies of the Buddha start with his previous lives. And he had many, many lives before. And um, one story is that he lived eons ago and he was a Brahmin, which is the highest class in the caste system. And um, his name was Sumedha. And he realized that life is characterized by suffering. And he wanted to find out what was going to happen after death, the story of life after death. So he moved to the mountains. He became a hermit and he practiced meditation and became a yogic master uh, and gained powers of being a yogic master. So one day he's flying through the air and he noticed a great crowd around a teacher. <clears throat> and he came to know that that was another Buddha named uh, Deepankara. He was so happy that he loosened his robes and his locks and he laid down to make a passage for Deepankara to walk over. He realized that if he could practice what he was teaching, that this would be his last life but he decided to stay and help others across. So Deepankara paused before uh, Sumedha and said, I prophesize that one day you will be a Buddha, prophesized his parents and even the tree he would sit under on the day of his enlightenment. So in the lifetime that we hear most about, uh, um, the Buddha was born to King Shudandaya Shudandana of the Shakyap clan, hence Shakyamuni. And the capital was Kapalavatsu, which we recite during our meal chants. Located in a region of India, which is now considered Nepal. His mother, Maya, dreamed of an elephant bringing her a lotus and entered through her side. And 10 months later, while she's walking through the garden, she leaned up on a tree and out from under her arm came the baby. Um, 
He could, by the way, he could already walk and talk. So he took seven steps and put one hand to the sky and one to the earth and announced, I alone am the world honored one. So his father decided that he might have something particularly unique here in this <laughs> So he called in all the astro uh, um, astrologers. You know, all parents think their kids are particularly unique, but there's something there. <laughs> he called in all the astrologers of the court, and seven of them said that he would either be a great king or he would be a spiritual leader of Buddha. And one said he would totally be a Buddha for sure. So the king decided that he wanted him, Shakyamuni, to be part of the family business. So he thought that the way to do that was to keep him isolated in, in the palace walls and remove him from all suffering. So he wouldn't question anything and want to find a spiritual path. So he kept away from him old age, sickness, and death. Um, and uh, I forgot to tell you, though, too, that seven days after he was born, his mother died, and he was then raised by his mother's sister, Maha Pachapati, who we hear about every time we chant as well. And when he was 16, he was married to the beautiful princess, Yashadara. And the story is that they were very much in love, and he was very, very happy. But when he was 29, something really profound happened. He decided that he wanted to leave the walls of the palace and see what was outside. So he asked his servant to take him. And the first thing he saw was a very, very old man. And bewildered, he asked his servant, what's going on here? And his servant said, well, sir, this is old age. This, this will happen to me and your parents and your family and you. It happens to everyone. Well, Shakyamuni, the prince, was very bewildered and surprised and asked to be taken up and left the palace three more times. The next time he saw someone very sick and the last time or the next time he saw a corpse being taken to cremation. And then the last time he saw some ascetics who were practicing. Each time he said to his servant, what's going on? And he said, sir, this is old age and uh, this is death. These two will happen to everyone you know and yourself. Well, this is particularly startling to him since he had really not seen much of it before. Um, and we think that maybe he hadn't seen it before. I mean, in the story, we think that he never saw anybody get old or sick or age. That's kind of impossible since he lived in the palace for 30 years. But probably what happened is that it was minimized for him. And it wasn't until he saw it in such a startling way that he realized there was something really happening, this thing called suffering. And, it, and when he did see these things, he decided that a life spent in the pursuit of happiness in things that age, grow old, and pass away uh, was a life thrown to waste. It didn't work. Not only that, but that to compete for happiness in these things meant that he would have to engage in conflict and probably do harm. And, and all this for things that would slip away through your fingers. 
So these were the realizations that inspired him to look for a more noble happiness, one that would last and be peaceful and that would require no harm or conflict in finding and maintaining it. This is, was a search for what might be skillful. So it's important to say that he wasn't really searching for his true self or even for the truth in abstract, but he was looking for a path that would yield the happiness without harm. <coughs> so something very huge stirred in him and he was changed forever. And maybe this has happened to you. Um, you're going along in life kind of oblivious to things going on around you and then something happens. Maybe it's something traumatic or a big loss or an illness or you just feel lost or unhappy. Or maybe it's something great that stirs you. But you know in that moment that your life will never be the same. You're different. And uh, maybe you're trying to end your own suffering and you uh, begin a quest. And I know that for many of us, that's what brought us here. So having seen the holy men who themselves were trying to end human suffering and, and find their way to enlightenment, he decided he wanted to leave the palace and retire to the woods. His father, distraught over losing him and losing him as a successor, said he would give him anything if he would just sit, stay. And Shakyamuni said to him, well, can you promise that I won't get old or sick or die? And of course, his father could not. So about that time, um, Shakyamuni's wife gave birth to a son. And the prince named his son Rahula, which means fetter, because this was the last fetter that kept him in that life. But the calling was too powerful for him. And in the end, he had to leave. So the story goes that one night he took a very long, long look at his wife and his child and left the palace. There are even some stories that say she helped him pack. I don't know. Um, so he left Kapilavatsu and the royal life behind and went to live in the forest. He cut his hair off. He lived in robes. He had a begging bowl and only ate what was given to him in this bowl. And during that time, he studied with two different gurus. And one guru said something really important to him, which is all wisdom comes from within. We have to experience it ourselves to really know what is true. It's not from outside, but from within ourselves. And this direct experience of understanding has become a foundational learning in our school to look within, to sit in zazen and look within, to do our daily tasks and find what is true for us within us. But even with this teaching, neither of the gurus really were able to answer his question. He, they didn't tell him how to end suffering and they didn't tell him about what the true nature of reality really is. So he left both of them looking for the answer to uh, the end of samsara, the cycle of birth and death. 
So then he joined a group of five ascetics. So if you're not familiar, ascetics practice, oh, hello, <laughs> great self-denial and austerities and abstain from worldly um, comforts and pleasures. They think that letting go of all the things in the body will reveal the higher level of understanding, connect you to the divine essence of the universe. So uh, the goal was to sit in meditation until enlightenment occurred. So one thing you have to say for the Buddha, this guy had a lot of self-discipline. So he sat so quietly um, that cobwebs grew in his eyebrows, that birds made nests in his hair, and that reeds grew up in his mat, and that he reduced his food to one grain of sand, uh, grain of sand <laughs> one grain of rice a day. And as you can imagine, some problems arose with this lifestyle. <laughs> um, first of all, the kind of effects of deprivation were very profound on him. I mean, he's sitting around thinking about how hungry he is, for one thing. And also, he got very close to death. Um, and still, he wasn't enlightened, and he didn't have the answers that he was seeking. So one day, a young woman saw the prince in his emaciated state and recognized him as a holy man. And out of her compassion, went and got some milk and rice and gave it to him. And he took it. And he realized then in that moment that neither the life of extreme pleasure um, and things or the life of extreme deprivation would give him the answer, would help make the ground for him to find the answers to these questions. And in that moment, developed a major concept for us in a way. So when his ascetic friends saw him eating, they decided he was living in the lap of luxury. <laughs> and they abandoned him. So alone and without a teacher, he vowed to sit under a tree and not rise until he found the answer to the issue of suffering and the great matter of life and death. Now, I probably I thought that he just sat there in a whole period of non-thinking for a really long time. But that's probably not exactly true. He was really working on a lot of these issues along the way. Um, what makes suffering? What, what is the cause? What is the cure? What is the fix? And what is the way? So, for example, he thought, when I see the effects of old age and sickness, and turn away in aversion. What does this really say about me and the suffering I create in doing that for that person and also for myself? So that's an example of the kind of thing he was thinking about. So aren't we encouraged to do the same thing now in practice, to sit and consider with our feelings, our thoughts, our questions, and, and hopefully the answers. And I know I've had this experience of sitting with a problem or a thought or a feeling or a memory and different things emerge as I am with it and, and present with it. So on the full moon of May six, uh, May, six years after he left practice, uh, after he left the palace, I'm sorry, he meditated until dawn. 
And then Mara, the god of desire, came, who wanted to keep all of this for himself. So Mara attacked him with everything. Rocks, wind, rain, hot coals, ashes, demons. Still, the Buddha sat motionless, calm. Then the Mara sent his three daughters. So listen to these names in case you're thinking of naming a child or an animal. <laughs> um, lust, thirst, and discontent. <laughs> but he remained unmoved. Finally, Mara asked him to justify his right to occupy this seat as a Buddha on the earth. Now, I think it's really interesting that the last <clears throat> obstacle to his enlightenment was a question of worthiness. I don't know about you, but it's a question for many of us, mm -hmm. our worthiness. But this was his last, his last challenge. So at that moment, in this very famous pose, the Buddha took his right hand and touched the earth. Let the earth bear witness, he said, and the earth shook. And that was a confirmation of all beings and all things that Siddhartha was a Buddha and a confirmation of his teachings. And at that moment, the Buddha said, I, with all beings, am enlightened. So the experience and awareness of his enlightenment are really beyond our comprehension, I believe. For example, he saw all this past lives come before him and he became aware of this great understanding of reality that many of us are looking for. And, and I think even beyond that, his comprehension. So at first, the Buddha kind of just sat and enjoyed this enlightenment. And it occurred to him that maybe after a while, maybe he should teach some of what he knew. But he was really concerned because his knowledge was so vast that he thought it would be overwhelming for people who were not enlightened. But with a great deal of compassion for mm -hmm. offering his teachings and a lot of skillful means, he decided to begin his teaching. So he spent the next 45 years traveling around India, the countryside, teaching his Dharma. Of course, one of the most important teachings and most direct teachings of the Buddha was the Four Noble Truths, because of course, one of his big questions was, what is the cause of suffering and what is the um, solution? And of course, we know that the Four Noble Truths are, there is suffering, um, the causes are dissatisfaction and attachment. Uh, the release of that is the solution. And then the path is the four, are the four, are the eightfold path. So I think that the story of the Buddha is so rich with teachings itself. First of all, it's a story of one person's journey uh, and devotion to find answers to his deepest questions. And those teachings we're still working with 2,500 years ago today. Um, it's a story of listening to the voices inside of ourselves. It's a story of perseverance and struggle and obstacles and, res and realization. Um, it, it's interesting to note that the Buddha worked off of a system of experimentation. 
he tried something very wholeheartedly. And when the experiment failed to yield the answers that he sought, he moved on. He wasn't limited or defined um, by his failed attempts. And he didn't look at his experiences as traumas, which would uh, negate his ability to um, persevere or to uh, be resilient. He learned, he used his experiments to learn from. Even the failures taught him something. Um, he had great abundance in his life and great deprivation. And I wonder if he could have become the Buddha without all of those experiences. It wasn't that he, be, he learned and he became the Buddha in spite of it. He became the Buddha because of them. So all of the experiences that we live, the ones that feel good, the ones that feel horrible, there's something to be gained that takes us to who we are and what we can become. Um, Galen Roshi talks a lot about this idea of edge, of moving to our edge and the disruption and how valuable disruption can be. And certainly the Buddha's life was one about disruption. He disrupted the status quo of his life in the palace. He disrupted the teachings of the ascetics. He disrupted disrupted our understanding of what is suffering and how to deal with it. And in that disruption, we gained this whole wealth of ability to learn and grow. So finally, and I think maybe most importantly, he told us who we truly are. When he awoke and said, I with all beings are enlightened, he was telling us about our own enlightenment. And even when he says, I am enlightened, there is no I, no separation. We are all together in this enlightenment. When he realizes enlightenment, we all do because we're not separate from this event. There is no Shakyamuni Buddha who awakened, who is separate from any of us. However varied and numerous we sit in Zazen and move through our lives in the eye of Buddha. When we sit, we are sitting in the eye of Buddha. But even more than that, we are Buddha. And when the Buddha, when the Buddha at his birth said, I alone am the world honored one, he was saying, we are all the world honored one. No matter what happens, no matter how we present, we break down, we get up, we are lost, we are confused, we are in love, we are all the world honored one. What would it mean to our feelings about ourselves and how would that direct our choices if we all stayed with that realization? How would we think of others when we know that they are all world honored ones too? with no exceptions. And I also think that when he says, I alone am the world honored one, he's speaking to the responsibility that comes from being a world honored one. <coughs> In this two-sided coin of separate and non-separate, we must play our part with great reference to who we are. How do we behave and what do we do knowing that? So I hope that telling the story opens you up to the study of your own enlightenment. 
moment by moment or in a big burst um, to find it with your own within your own heart and your particular manifestation of Buddha. So I'll leave with this very short poem. Zen Master Kazan offers this poem. One branch stands out on the old apricot tree. Thorns come forth at the same time.